Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is John Alam. John is the co-founder and CEO of Cambridge, Massachusetts-based EIP Pharma. This is a small company running clinical trials to test an unconventional idea for the treatment of Alzheimer's. The gist is that if you can tamp down certain kinds of inflammation, you might be able to stop some of the synaptic dysfunction that leads to the loss of memory and cognition over time in Alzheimer's patients. This is a distinct and complementary mechanism to the one everyone knows about, in which companies try to target amyloid beta plaque buildups. I first wrote about John, the former chief medical officer of Vertex, and this novel approach to Alzheimer's on Timmerman Report in 2017. At the time, I wrote, the drug is called neflamapamod. This compound was tested at Vertex as far back as the 1990s. It's designed to inhibit P38 mitogen-activated protein kinase alpha, P38 MAP kinase alpha. Researchers know that P38 regulates inflammation through effects on immune cells. More recently, scientists have observed that the target is expressed in neurons in times of stress and disease. In those situations, P38 appears to play a major role in synaptic dysfunction, making it harder to achieve synaptic plasticity. And that begs more than a few questions. If you can achieve P38 inhibition in the brain, can you mitigate synaptic dysfunction? And if so, will that spare people from the learning and memory decline of Alzheimer's disease? The drug failed for other clinical indications, partly because it concentrated twice as much in the brain as it did in the peripheral blood. That disadvantage in one setting, however, can be seen as a dosing advantage for a drug that's supposed to get into the brain. Now, two years later, EIP has phase two results. Data are being presented at the Clinical Trials on Alzheimer's Disease, CTAD, conference in San Diego, December 4 to 7. This is the same conference where Biogen will present hotly anticipated data from its amyloid beta-directed antibody, aducanumab. The EIP study didn't turn out exactly as hoped. But that doesn't mean there's nothing to learn here. Anyone interested in learning more about Alzheimer's drug discovery and development would be well served to listen to John, as he's a serious thinker about the biology and the clinical development of Alzheimer's therapies. I think you'll come away from this conversation with an appreciation for the complexity of the biology and how many more things we have to learn about this devastating disease of aging. Now, before we start the episode, a couple quick things. Today's sponsor is PPD Biotech. As your drug development program advances, it's critical to select the right CRO partner for your innovative therapy. With a full set of development services and global reach, PPD Biotech offers teams that are dedicated to biotech and small to mid-sized pharma. PPD Biotech knows that every milestone, every project update, every change in direction is important. Committed to close alignment and the right cultural fit, PPD Biotech works as an extension of your team every step of the way to find innovative solutions that get your treatments to the clinic faster. To learn more about PPD Biotech, visit www.ppdbiotech.com. 
And are you a marquee service provider eager to get your name out in front of the biotech leaders who listen to the long run? Ask my new business representative, Stephanie Barnes, about sponsorship opportunities for the long run. You can reach out to her by looking at the contact page on TimmermanReport.com. The other thing you can do to support quality biotech journalism is to purchase a subscription to Timmerman Report. It's $149 a year for an individual subscriber. Companies and universities with multiple readers can purchase a group sharing license. You'll get two to three in-depth articles per week without any advertising. Specifically, you'll be able to glean insights from the talented crew of contributing writers who I edit and publish. They are Stacey Lawrence, David Shaywitz, Asher Mullard, Alex Harding, and Leora Schiff. Go to TimmermanReport.com slash subscribe and start getting ahead of the curve today. Now, please join me and John Ollum on the long run. Welcome, John Allum, to the long run. Thank you, Luke. Very uh, happy to be here, and thank you for the invitation. Well, I'm really excited to have you here on the show today, John, because um, I think you have a really interesting story about um, Alzheimer's drug development, how we think about it, but also about how uh, you think about starting companies. Um, I think of you and and your wife, Sylvie Gregoire, uh, as a, a, a true blue entrepreneurs in that high risk, high reward sense. Um, you're taking a calculated risk. You're putting your own money where your mouth is on the line. You didn't give away your company to the VCs in the early going. Um, and, and you've got like a really interesting rationale for going about this. Um, so uh, and now you're in phase two. So <laughs> I, I think there's a lot to cover here on today's show. And I'm really um, excited that you made time for it. Well, again, thank you. So, um before we let we'll get into the basics here just real quick for those unfamiliar EIP Pharma is a company that is developing uh, a P38 MAP kinase inhibitor that you in licensed from Vertex um, you're a former Vertex executive uh, oversaw some of the science and development of this program in the I guess the late 90s through the early 2000s didn't really work as a rheumatoid arthritis treatment or for some other autoimmune diseases but um, you, you saw some potential as the science developed later on um, for this in neurodegenerative diseases. And, and I'll let you explain uh, that uh, as the show goes on. But um, as you know, I, before we get to that, um, I like to lay down some contextual groundwork here for the listeners, like who you are. <laughs> uh, so maybe you can just start me off very simple. Where, where are you from, John? So I grew up in the in the Midwest. Um, went to uh, ended up at MIT uh, as an undergrad in um, majored in chemical engineering. Went to medical school. Wait, wait what part of the Midwest? Um, in in uh, in Iowa City. Uh, where the Iowa University City. Of okay, Iowa college is. town. College town. A Hawkeye. Um, you know my 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 parents are from. What's now um, Bangladesh? Uh, we had actually moved there when I was uh, ten years old. Um, had come from then East Pakistan in the in the midst of the at, right after the war that created Bangladesh broke out, um, and then grew up there. And I think it was a in the nineteen seventies had a big impact on my worldview. 
Wow. So what did your parents do and what brought them to Iowa City? Uh, my, my parent, my, my father was a, uh, organic chemist, um, was doing a, uh, research associateship, a, uh, second postdoc, University of Iowa, eventually ended up at the FDA, uh, was a toxicology reviewer there for 20 years. And my mother was originally a physics major, um, went back to the University of Iowa, got a master's in, uh, computer science and worked in, um, ITIS uh, in the government for 20 plus years. Wow. Okay. And do you have any siblings? Um, older sister, younger brother. Okay. So you come there, you're 10 years old. Um, this is a, <laughs> a long way from Bangladesh, <laughs> literally and figuratively. What was that um, time and place like? What influence did it have on you? Well, it was a, uh, I think Iowa City in the time and the University of Iowa, Eastern Iowa, all of that was a, um, in the 1970s was actually a very uh, liberal, progressive um, outlook place. We, uh, we arrived there you know, two months later, all of downtown Iowa City was destroyed in the protests against the Vietnam War. Um, we were the Eastern Iowa at the time through the seventies was one of the most liberal congressional districts in the country. Um, and it was a, it was a mixture of small town, uh, America, uh, in a, in this university setting, progressive setting with a very much a forward looking global outlook. Um, so I think of it as a idyllic background. Your parents probably thought, boy, we were trying to find some peace and quiet here in Eastern Iowa. And well, <laughs> it's, I think it's tumultuous, so but, but, but it sounds me, like you found, your, you found your community. Because this is a university, it's a cosmopolitan kind of small town. Lots of people from all around the world come there to do, to do research at University of Iowa. That's correct. It's a, it's, it's a blending of the two. For them, obviously, this was far afield, that much more than for me. I was still an adaptable age of life. Um, I think that's why eventually they moved to the Washington, D.C. area, um, where they actually had more friends in the D.C. area from out of uh, university than anywhere else in the world. Interesting. So when did that happen? That was in the late 70s, right, right, right when I started, uh, went out for college. It was the same time we, um, they moved to the D.C. area. Okay. Okay. So you really um, did your um, your middle school and high school um, in Iowa City. Uh, did you um, latch onto science and medicine as uh, your path early on, or how did that happen? Um, all the way through, I was always uh, science directed. Um, there was a point in time I was going to follow in my mother's footsteps and be a physics major and become a uh, a, a quantum physicist, but about a week into MIT and um, you know the advanced physics course, that's all it took for me to understand that you know that was not for me. I could not think in the way that the people around me were thinking. And then from then on, it's been more uh, medicine and biology, but still had that drive for. I've always had that drive for research, uh, innovation, and moving moving understanding of science and, in this case, biology and medicine forward. 
It's been okay. Well, so you get into MIT for undergraduate. I mean, this is um, um, you must have been a pretty good student. Uh, you thought about physics from the beginning, but then moved into biology at some point. Well, moved into actually chemical engineering, um, and which at an MIT is a is actually the closest thing to an all around major. Um, you can there were out of my undergrad class, 10% went to medical school, 10% went to law school, many more eventually went to business school. It's just a, it's a, uh, it's a discipline for um, thinking mathematically, uh, problem solving, um, and it's actually held me in good stead all the way through because in drug development, uh, kinetics, uh, thinking in terms of systems, uh, problem solving, these are all core skills that have uh, ended up coming in handy throughout my career. Yeah, you probably still had quite a few quantitative-based science classes as an undergrad. You didn't, you know, escape that uh, necessarily, uh, even if physics was a little daunting. Did not. Lots of organic chemistry, lots of physical chemistry, um, again, things that ca- actually come in handy if you're, especially if you're in small molecule drug development, as I have been most of my career. Okay, so uh, chemical engineering at MIT. Uh, then you decide medical school. Correct. At Northwestern. When and why? It was actually most of the way through. That was a plan um, at, at MIT. I didn't necessarily want to be a pre-med and. Um, in a sense, limit myself to that as the path. This gave an opportunity to think more broadly. And within the MIT context, especially at the time, I think it was just, again, it's a very good framework and construct of just learning how to think, how to problem solve. Um, and, and then much of medical school, especially the first two years in, in classes, where there was a lot in things like physiology, pharmacology, et cetera, that the thinking, uh, approaching those problems with a engineering background uh, actually made a lot of intuitive sense uh, with, the, with, with that as a background. Did you think about diseases kind of from a, a molecular, kind of ground up, quantifiable sort of sense, uh, as opposed to, um, you know, um, I don't know, observing symptoms? So at the time, um, you know, it was in the, in the, I'm old enough now where I can say actually at the time, um, you know, medicine was much more, um, it was based on these concepts of physiology and pharmacology, how organ systems work together um, and, you know, the, the blood flows and the, the dynamics of the interactions between the heart and the kidney, for example, et cetera, this, that's physiology, is what medicine was intrinsically about. Um, and then therapeutics and treatment people was about pharmacology, which again is another way of thinking about how drugs then interact with at a systems level, at an organ system level and a physiologic systems level, how how you breathe, how oxygen is exchanged, et cetera, how drugs interact in that system. I think that that's how we were thought. We didn't necessarily go 
we didn't have enough understanding of a lot of the molecular events um, to really think in terms of um, the, 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 the molecular events um, other than in certain biochemical events, et cetera. But, but that was starting to happen. In, in that, it was starting that, that, to happen. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So um, it's not to say that one way is right and the other is wrong. Um, it was just a different way of, of looking at the problems and um, sort of, you know, the, the difference between the forest and the trees is one analogy. Anyway. Yeah, and, uh, and I think we're actually coming back to it. I think we've gone deep into the molecular biology. And if you look at a lot of when we start talking about systems biology, we're actually building back up towards the physiology pharmacology level. Because ultimately, you know, in, in medicine, um, and actually when you're faced with a patient problem, it's an interplay of both the molecular events and but it is at the end and the physiologic pharmacological level. Well, let's just put a pin in this because we're going to come back to this later when we talk about your program, uh, both the, the molecular uh, basis for it and, and, uh, and that more holistic uh, systems view. Um, but, okay, so this is, uh, you, you go to medical school at Northwestern, right? And um, did you decide, um, what, did you wanted to practice medicine for a while? Or, or how did you end up going into um, industry? So I was, um, I, what I was destined for coming out of Northwestern, and what my plan was to go into academic medicine, um, though focused on early stage and developing drugs and, and medicines, like innovation towards uh, new drug therapies. Um, and so I did, a, I did my uh, medicine residency at Brigham Women's Hospital. Um, and then went and worked in a basic science lab at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And my plan was to then go back and do a clinical fellowship and then eventually go into uh, academic oncology, um, doing more, though, rather than basic science, doing more clinical research um, towards developing new drug therapies. Um, but then, then something changed? Well, what changes is that being in the lab, um, while I really like the science and I learned a uh, tremendous amount, um, you know, one of my um, colleagues in the lab, we, we were in, uh, in the lab of someone named David, David Livingston. One of my colleagues in the lab was Bill Kalin, who just won the Nobel Prize. Um, and he is, the, is this great example of wh- how academic oncologists in the, in the time and place, how they develop their careers, which is to spend substantive time in the lab. And the primary focus is in terms of, the, um, of being in the lab. And he's, he's, he's tremendous. He's obviously done um, from then, from even then, we knew that this is, he was going to be really good at this. When I looked at being in a lab, it's a little bit like being, um, look, thinking about being a physics major again, that I knew I could do this, I enjoyed it enough, but this was not my, this was not my heart and soul, and this is not what would really drove me. I wanted to be closer to the patient. Um, and I had a mentor uh, within the Brigham and Women's Harvard Medical School System who said that if we listened, actually listened to what I said, which was I wanted to be at the intersection of 
science and drug development and really help shape which drugs get developed and how they get developed. And his, his co- immediate comment was that um, if that's what you want to do, you should go into industry because the decisions on what gets developed and how it gets developed, how you run the experiments, how you evaluate new mechanisms, et cetera, that's done within industry. And in now, the time, by this time, was, by this time, we're talking the late eighties, early nineties, so early nineties. So, uh, biotech is, you know, just down the street, <laughs> is, is down uh, the street though, in relative terms, still in its infancy. The yep. one of the more established companies at the time already was Biogen. And, and so how did you end up going to, to Biogen? Biogen? It was actually through an introduction through the, to the same mentor, to the head of clinical development at um, Biogen, who knew that uh, he, he basically, my mentor knew that Biogen was looking for someone young who understood science, but had a passion for drug development and um, said that you should go meet him. And I, one thing, one conversation led to another. And the next thing I knew, I was running the, the interferon beta 1A clinical program, which was in, uh, in viral hepatitis. And then eventually, and more, or more importantly, ultimately, in as a treatment uh, for multiple sclerosis. This is what became eventually uh, Avonex, uh, which was Biogen's first uh, drug for multiple sclerosis and one of the first that's the, two or three. That's the drug that made the company. Drug. That is the drug that made the company. And it didn't work in its first indication, viral hepatitis. Not really, the way people hoped. Um, no, that's, the, the, that's correct. It was a, it worked no better than interferon alpha, which had just been approved at the time we were looking at it. Um, and there were a whole set of circumstances that made it that it only made sense for Biogen to focus on uh, on Avonex and uh, for for on multiple sclerosis for that product, along which the science caught up with it all around. And then in the end, the phase three trial, which we were in, uh, working with investigators, uh, working with the NIH in a collaboration, that it worked. And then all of a sudden, we had this drug that, in the beginning, no one was was uncertain about what it's how, how likely it would be to work, but it worked. And there's um, so many stories like this where, history. yeah, drugs that um, end up being really important for uh, a certain patient population just uh, they didn't work in the initial indication. Um, we've seen this time and time again. Uh, I think of around in the 1990s, one of the contemporaries was Enbrel, the TNF inhibitor. <laughs> Didn't work for sepsis, but it hit on the second indication, rheumatoid arthritis. And again, rest is history <laughs> for TNF inhibitors. Absolutely. Okay, so 1990s are going along. You're doing this program at Biogen. I think you're there like five, six years. Uh, 97, this is right around when Avonex got approved. Um, and that's when you left for Vertex. Is that right? That is correct. And so, what you know, what brought you to Vertex? So, I I, I describe uh, Biogen as a great N of one experience. Everything you could think about in terms of you know drug development and the industry and commercialization in a in a in a you know medical role, 
that you could have from beginning to end. We went from, you know, phase one studies through phase two, phase three, um, you know, wrote the NDA, uh, wrote the clinical expert report for Europe, did presentations both in the advisory committee at FDA um, in some, and, and to the presentation to the, into the European uh, the, the, the committee for um, uh, review of, of new products um, did literally, in a sense, carry the bag, went out with the sales force, um, did managed care calls, uh, did dinner meetings, uh, reviewed, uh, wrote the, the prescribing information label, uh, reviewed advertising materials, everything. It was Sounds like a tremendous learning experience. All those things they don't teach you in medical school or that you don't get in a basic research lab. This is almost like a PhD in drug development. Yeah, and just, and it was fun. It was just, it's a, you get to meet all different types of people within the business. You're both internally, externally. And that's right. It is the, it's a great lesson of, drug development, it's not just the bottoms up and the science, et cetera, but actually when you're out there with having the clinical data, having a product label, et cetera, actually talking to prescribers, talking to managed care and physicians, you understand what drives people in the real world. So the next time you come in and you're developing a drug, you're thinking about that, um, but you're actually really connected to that world and understand that world. Okay, so now you're more you're more experienced and you're able to leverage that uh, into this new role at Vertex. And what was your uh, mandate? So my mandate was there was um, so I I was head of clinical development, uh, which over two to three years evolved into um, you know going more broadly into development that included regulatory affairs, toxicology, et cetera. And then most of my time was then there uh, over the next eleven years is. Uh, what we ended up calling medicines development. So it's all aspects of drug development, except for the the manufacturing chemistry side. Um, it, it was a completely different experience, and I didn't understand that until I got there, um, in that Biogen was biologics, and Avenix was biologics, and all of Biogen was bi- biologics. Vertex is was and is small molecules. It's small molecule drug development, which is a very different discipline. Um, There were many things that I brought from biologics or my Biogen experience, but there were lots of things that I was just learning uh, from the grounds up in terms of, you know, how you develop, um, do, 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 do small molecule drug development, starting with the toxicology and thinking about dose response and how the drug is cleared, et cetera. There is so much more in small molecules, especially at the time uh, where biologics and how you develop drug, a biologic was still in its infancy. Um, The two have come together more closely these days, but at the time this was, uh, this was all learning, especially in the, in, in, in the first few years. And Vertex was, one of the few biotech companies has small molecules. All that PKPD, um, that's super important, and, uh, and you needed to go to school on that. Absolutely, which was maybe what I was destined to do because my father ultimately 
you know, organic chemist. He took courses at Iowa. He became a pharmacologist, and this is what he did. And so okay, okay. maybe this is what so, I was born to do. Now, in these years, Vertex, so late 90s through the 2000s, um, the hepatitis C program, Telaprevir, I mean, I, I covered this one. That was a big um, area of priority. I think pretty much the whole time you would have been there. Um, That's correct. Right? So one of the draws to, um, to Vertex was they were in, when I first got there, they were doing HIV and cancer. Um, and cancer is what I had tr- done some training in and understood. And HIV out of medical school when is when when I was there is when the AIDS epidemic really broke. Um, it's so- something that I always really was passionate about. I wanted to be involved in HIV at some point. So initially, the first few years is actually HIV, which then morphed into uh, very quickly into hepatitis C as well. And so one of the things that we were able to do and what Vertex and think with a couple of other companies is, is to really bring in the thinking of antivirals development in HIV into hepatitis C. Um, and it's that cross-fertilization um, is what actually ultimately moved the field forward in hepatitis C, where traditionally it had been dominated by liver disease specialists and the thinking in terms of drug development was centered around interferon and more concepts around the immune system and immunostimulation rather than thinking about it as a, as a antiviral drug development and thinking in terms of PKPD and dose response and modeling viral responses, et cetera. Um, and Vertex was really a pioneer in bringing that, the HIV thinking into hepatitis C. And the combinations that would uh, help uh, fend off resistance and viral replication, right? That's correct. That's correct. Okay, so so HIV morphs into HCV. That was a story that took a long time to play out. And then when it did, wow, it was pretty amazing. But um, one of the things, that now I want to get toward what um, is your current work. Uh, there was this program, uh, which I forget the code name for it, VX, I think, 754, Neflamapamod, 745. You call it Neflamapamod, is that right? So the, that's right. The generic name that we got from, ultimately, from the WHO is Neflamapimod. The Mapimod is, okay. we were just, we had no choice on. We had to take it. I'll have to practice pronouncing that one a couple times. But, okay, so here's a program. Uh, can you just describe for our listeners um, what the, the rationale was for developing this one against autoimmune disease? So it is a, so it is a, it's an oral uh, small molecule kinase inhibitor in the same sense of, I'm sure many of the listeners now are very uh, familiar with in the, in the cancer world, there are these oral kinase inhibitors, targeted therapies that are target very specific, and sometimes more than one, but often more than one, but kinases, which are proteins generally inside cells that are involved in how within the cell, how various processes are organized. And the kinases, it attaches one particular protein called the phosphate onto different proteins, and it changes in subtle ways 
the activity of different proteins, but it's a, it's a major way of intracellular and then as well as from cell to cell, how cells communicate with each other are through these protein kinases. So in the inflammation world, um, this particular kinase that this drug blocks is called P38 mitogen activated protein kinase, um, or P38 MAP kinase, or even shorter P38. Um, there are four different isoforms of this, um, alpha, beta, delta, gamma. Alpha is the one that is the dominant biology and what most of the our, our drug is targeted against, so I'll just say P38 alpha. In the inflammation world, what in this the, these P38 inhibitors were discovered um, in a screen for looking at immune cells um, in the early 90s in, in immune cells to see what would whether just a small looking for small molecules that would inhibit production of cytokines like interleukin one beta and TNF alpha, and they worked backwards to get this target. And what they discovered is one of its biologic properties is when it's activated, it increases the production of interleukin-1-beta and TNF-alpha, particularly from macrophages and other immune cells, which then okay. very quickly people connected the dots and says, that, wait a minute, it was at the time just after Enbrel in, um, in, uh, as a TNF-alpha inhibitor had come onto the market for rheumatoid arthritis, that this is a mechanism that you could, as a potential mechanism for an oral drug to inhibit TNF-alpha and interleukin-1-beta production in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. And a number of companies led by Vertex, as well as um, uh, GlaxoSmithKline, J&J, Roche, all had products directed towards rheumatoid arthritis, these oral kinase inhibitors that would target TNF-alpha and IL-1-beta production. For now, that's obviously interesting because the Enbrel TNF inhibitor is a fusion protein, large molecule given by injection. And at the time, it was given like twice a week injections and they, they reduced it. But, you know, clearly there was a, an opening people perceived for an oral small molecule that could tamp down that same kind of inflammation from TNF and plus, you know, maybe another cytokine or two, uh, <laughs> right? That's correct. So in the end, um, in room, in, for these inflammatory disorders, for a number of different reasons, these P38 kinase inhibitors did not pan out. And amongst other reasons, the, you know, there was some toxicity concerns, particularly in terms of liver enzyme elevation. And then the biology does, in the end, doesn't quite hold up because in the inflammation process is controlled by a, both P38 alpha and P38 beta. And so what most of us saw is that there, in fact, it was validated there was an anti-inflammatory effect. There was clinical benefit, but over time it didn't hold up as well as it needed to be because the body or the immune cells found a way around the block of P30 alpha, particularly, we believe, by upregulating the, the beta isoform and the activity of this, this cousin of P38 alpha and just bypassing the block that the molecule otherwise was, was providing in terms of, uh, of inflammation. 
So those drugs, so, including ours, were shelved. Now, were you uh, you worked your way up during these years? Ended up being uh, EVP and Chief Medical Officer at the end, 2008, when you left. When was that decision made to shelve the program? And was that like really? Did that land on your desk? That 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 was my decision, and that was done actually along. You know, early, in some ways, early even to mid part of my time is in the early 2000s, uh, 2002, three time frame, 2002 time frame. Um, and, the, and the reason with this particular molecule, we actually, um, for a variety of different reasons, including the reason why eventually I went back to it, that it actually has higher brain concentrations than in the blood. We actually stopped the development of this program to go with a, uh, a, a, a very similar molecule that did not get into the brain, which made it much better suited, along with some of its pharmaceutical properties, et cetera, for a drug for rheumatoid arthritis. So we did the rest of the program with a, 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 a compound called VX702, um, again, similar profile in terms of kinase inhibition, but much better profile for going after a non-CNS, a non-central nervous system disorder. And that was, was the one that went into clinical testing for Crohn's and asthma? Fully. It went through to and phase two. And in the end, it's, the result was, as I said, that it, there was a transient anti-inflammatory effect. It was something in drug development, which we call tachyphylaxis. There's an initial response that uh, goes away over time. Okay, so um, you and and, Vert- and Vertex, you, you put this thing on the shelf. So 745, this is the one, it's the P38 um, MAP kinase inhibitor alpha. Uh, it's sitting on the shelf, and it's there for good reasons. It's gone through um, something like 150 uh, patients, You've got some idea of its PKPD properties, uh, the safety. There's a safety signal on liver enzymes up at a high dose of something like 250 milligrams, I think. Um, but uh, And then you also saw like double the concentration ended up in the brain versus in the blood. And for a systemic circulating disease like uh, rheumatoid arthritis, <laughs> you don't want that. Um, so it went on the shelf. And... I suppose, like anything else, you probably sort of like put it out of your mind, right? For a while, anyway. That's correct. And now, how how did you end up coming back to it? So, in the meantime, and eventually, I um, I, uh, I I left Vertex um, in late two thousand eight, um, really to think about a, a different set of activities, and amongst them was actually doing something more entrepreneurial. And as I was you know, looking at various possibilities in doing something more independent and entrepreneurial, one of the, I, I came across then a new set of initially very preliminary, but building out set of science papers that identified this mechanism, this kinase, P38-alpha, as playing a role in CNS disease, particularly in Alzheimer's disease. And in essence, a view that if only we had a 
molecule that got into the brain and gave you a means to get out of the systemic toxicity risk, um, this would be a great mechanism to evaluate in Alzheimer's disease. Wait a second. Now, you, you left Vertex in 2008. Did you go straight to Sanofi then? Or, I did not. Or no? I, I joined Sanofi in early, about two years after, um, a little over two years after I left um, uh, Vertex. In the meantime, I did some advising to um, uh, smaller companies, uh, including a company called Inhibitex, um, did nonprofit work. Uh, was on the board of a um, translation, a nonprofit in the area of multiple sclerosis, um, looking at building out a uh, translational science in MS towards uh, new targets and mechanisms. Um, did this is really interesting because this is like nuclear winter time for biotech startups coming out of the financial crisis. I mean, it wasn't like there were lots of companies hiring, um, but you, but the science was, you know, obviously still progressing. In, in, science on was interesting. Fronts. There was a, a major question that we needed to address, which was the whole concept um, underlying what we were trying to do was that because of this higher brain concentration along with the fact that outside of the brain, it's bound by proteins in the blood, which decreases the potency of the drug if it's outside of the brain. Inside the brain, the protein concentrations are low, so it has greater potency. And then what it set up was a possibility that um, you could give this drug at very low doses and um, have no effect outside of the brain, but still have a, a drug effect in the brain. And, and by not having an effect, it gets you outside, gets away from the toxicity risks like the liver problems that had been one of the issues with P38 MAP kinase inhibitors. Today's sponsor is PPD Biotech. As your drug development program advances, it's critical to select the right CRO partner for your innovative therapy. With a full set of development services and global reach, PPD Biotech offers teams that are dedicated to biotech and small to mid-sized pharma. PPD Biotech knows that every milestone, every project update, every change in direction is important. Committed to close alignment and the right cultural fit, PPD Biotech works as an extension of your team every step of the way to find innovative solutions that get your treatment to the clinic faster. To learn more about PPD Biotech, visit www.ppdbiotech.com. You obviously knew the properties of this drug inside out. This was one of your programs. Uh, you had left and were, were kicking around some different ideas entrepreneurially and, and had some other activities going. Um, but then you, you, um, you, you did learn of some new literature, um, some, some research that, that, uh, that says what about the biology of, uh, of Alzheimer's? Like a, a, new, a new theory, if you will, that started to come together, a new story? Well, it was, a, it was an extension of an old story coming back. And it was a story around inflammation um, as being a 
uh, a key part of the story of Alzheimer's disease. So if we just step back, um, the, for since now coming up on 30 years, um, our understanding of Alzheimer's disease and concepts of Alzheimer's disease are around, are around what's called the amyloid hypothesis, which grows out of looking at patients who have clear genetic inherited Alzheimer's disease and where do those mutations lie. And they're all involved in the metabolism and um, the, the, it, they're, they're all directly or indirectly connected to a protein called amyloid precursor protein, APP. And then in the brain, you see these plaques that have as one of the major parts of that, this protein, amyloid beta, which is a degradation product of APP, amyloid precursor protein. Um, there is the concept today is, is that the, the, the disease is a, is a, is a interplay of amyloid beta and amyloid precursor protein fragments with another protein called tau, which makes up a, the part of the, in the pathology, something called neurofibrillary tangles. But a third player in that is the interplay is between amyloid, tau, and inflammation. And it's the two, three together that make up it. Inflammation in the 90s was actually a very big um, uh, concept into the 2000s. And because of that, um, the COX-2 inhibitors, including and particularly Vioxx, had been actually evaluated as a, um, as, as an, as a, as a therapeutic for Alzheimer's disease. Um, well, nobody remembers that, <laughs> but they didn't work. Um, yeah. and, but out of the, eventually in the late 2000s, there was more, it wasn't that what you didn't want to do. And I think remains a concept is just knock down inflammation as Vioxx, et cetera, do. You need to think about specific aspects of inflammation that are deleterious to the, um, to the, to, 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 to the neuron. Um, and P38 seemed to be a important part of that. Um, in particular, if you look at the cytokine interleukin-1 beta, it impairs neuronal function and synaptic function. And it does so via activating P38. There was p literature out in that time that, that was started, and it's been much better, even more deeply developed over the last 10 years or so. So, so this, this goes was back the, to the this goes back to the 90s when the amyloid hy hypothesis was just really gaining currency. Uh, but that's the part of the story most people are familiar with. That that you know we gradually accumulate these A beta. Uh, proteins they they form in these plaques and um, and damage neurons and we lose memory and everything else goes downhill. Um, and then the other part of the science was that amyloid beta um, that was relevant is that amyloid beta is toxic to neuronal functions. It inhibits what's called synaptic plasticity um, in the hippocampus, which is a memory formation part of the brain. And by the time I was looking at this around 2010, there were the first set of papers that argued that the way actually amyloid beta exerts its toxicity 
is by activating P38 map kinase inside the neuron. So these were all the reasons to start thinking about it. The first part of that that we and why we didn't we first had to do was again show that activity in the brain in animals at much lower doses than we were working at um, in in our prior studies in our prior animal studies and in the clinic. Wait a second, John. So, um, how did this literature come to your attention? Did somebody say, "Hey, hey, John, uh, I saw this thing about P thirty eight. You might want to take a look," or? Or uh, did the, the the researcher like call you because he knew of your work at Vertex, or how did that come about? No, it was just I'm, I was doing various other things, and I was starting to look at Alzheimer's disease. It's a little bit of a coming full circle of being in neurology early in my career. And if I step back and look at my things I had worked on, I'd ridden the wave in MS, in HIV, and hepatitis C. I actually, was involved in cystic fibrosis. Uh, in the early phase of the activities at Vertex, you know, the, the big open question was, you know, where, where, was the, where were the breakthroughs, where were the needs? And, you know, CNS disease at that time in particular was coming to finally, it felt like, yes, the medical need was always there, but the science was starting to come together, and I felt like you know this is what I was going to explore, and then well, this was a was way. There, was could, there like one paper that you looked at and said, oh, "Okay, there's an aha moment here," and, and I need to call that researcher? Um, there was one paper. There were probably two to three, but then it, the aha was connecting back into the fact that I knew this molecule. That it was a, one particular paper was actually from a Japanese group. Um, and the other one was from a group at, at, at Northwestern um, that looked at a P38 alpha inhibitor that they had discovered, but they could not take forward because of toxicity concerns. Um, it was really a tool compound, and they were looking for what could be a drug. And then the aha moment was, wait, you know, I already know this drug that has the properties to be a drug for brain disease that has finished a full toxicology program, that has clinical data out to three months of treatment at quite high doses. We know what the safety profile is or what the dose-limiting toxicities are. And this was uniquely a drug that um, you could then take directly into phase two studies to see if the biology that people were saying um, and at the time, relevant, 2010 or so, or you're looking at animal data, which suggests if you can uh, tamp down P38, uh, you can reduce some of that toxic effect on neurons and retain um, neuronal plasticity, which is really important fundamentally if you want to treat Alzheimer's. That's the thesis, right? That is the thesis. Okay, so um, you hit then have to like uh, your your um, the light bulb is on for you. An aha moment has occurred. You're entrepreneurial, but by this time you're you're at Santa Fe, right? So you've got a day job, right? So um, well, so along the way, I had the aha moment. Was about to launch this, and then yes, there was a detour. <laughs> that okay. um, you know there was a um, this opportunity presented itself. Um, if I was going to, the, the real 
higher level is both to be an entrepreneur and there was a decision made that I really wanted to devote the, 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 the better part of the, my career going forward to Alzheimer's disease. And what was presented to me was a R&D job in diseases of aging um, and in particular almost all the global efforts at Santa Fe in research and development in Alzheimer's disease was in that group. That's pretty hard to pass up. A lot of resources there uh, working on an area that's important to you therapeutically. Okay, so you go and do that. But then um, you, 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 this thing is kind of bugging at you, right? <laughs> like, I, I really think that there's something there maybe with this P38 inhibitor from way back in my Vertex days. Uh, so then you have to figure out a couple things. Like one, can you do this as sort of like a side project at Santa Fe? And then two, can, can you convince your former employer to like, license over the rights to you. Right? Right. And so, so how did how did that come about? Well, it 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 remained when I when I went to Santa Fe, we had a uh, it was part of my contract and it was agreement that there were aspects of this I could continue as you said as a, as a side project. The IP and everything was well separated. It was all very well defined. It was mainly to and, and what happened during over, and it didn't, you know, it happened more slowly inherently, is to do a little bit more work in animals to understand um, dose response. And again, this hypothesis of could you maintain an effect in the brain of these animals while giving very low doses that you knew in the clinic would not have um, uh, significant or would not have toxicity uh issues or concerns. Um, so that happened. And then a discussion with Vertex um, to license out first under a research agreement to do these animal studies with a, a an ability to then license it under predefined terms at the end of that two-year period. And so at the end of those two years was you know, was right around the time ahead of that, I'd actually made the decision to leave Santa Fe, uh, move back to the U.S., and then we licensed the, um, the, the made the, the option agreement and then prepared to take the drug back into the clinic, now in uh, phase 2A for, for Alzheimer's disease. Okay, so when you say we, uh, this is like you and your wife, Sylvie Gregoire, uh, a very accomplished drug developer in her own right, former president of Shire, uh, Human Genetic Therapies, I, uh, history at Biogen, other companies. Um, and, and you decide, the two of you, um, you, you want to devote some of your own resources, uh, it, both um, intellectual and financial, right? That's correct. Um. I think you've told me once before that you had to do this license uh, agreement. You, you paid out something like $5 million to Vertex to get this, right? Well, it was, it was not to Vertex. It was $5 million to altogether. And it was a combination of cash and debt uh, to finance the, the phase 2A studies um, to, to, to get the uh, initial set of data and actually do some more animal work to really um, validate the target. 
um, which is an ongoing activity, um, all the way until you're approved. Um, but it is to the, the our cash investment was very, very much towards that. Okay, so you and Sylvie are making a a big a big bet here, uh, personally, professionally. You decide to uh, take the leap from Santa Fe. I guess this was around 2014 yes, uh, to to really work full time on this new company, EIP Pharma, to to execute on this development plan in Alzheimer's. Yes, and it's a uh, you know it was a it was a right time of uh, career um, and you know it is a there's a the common thread through my career and then is is inflammation because interferon beta is about inflammation p38 is about inflammation and really deeply thinking about mechanisms of of inflammation etc so it was a it was a confluence of background experience an ability to take risk, uh, you know, at, 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 at stage of career. And a fair amount of that, there's enough science and, and there's even more in which we can, which we should talk about is that even in the last couple of months have come out that makes this target that, uh, in this mechanism that needs to be evaluated fully um, in Alzheimer's disease. And I think there's a well, let's greater get there, good arg- w- argument within that. Real quick, you decided not to uh, take venture capital uh, early on, or maybe you didn't need to, to run the series of experiments that you thought were necessary to give you some more clarity on the, the mechanism, the animal models. Um, uh, why was that? Is it just like partly this was sort of like a repurposed asset? A lot of VCs would kind of dismiss it out of hand. Didn't that thing fail at Vertex? It's a combination of factors. We could have gotten VC money under certain sort of terms, um, but it was a. I think in the the our, our our view was that we needed full flexibility, ability, and and in the end, to a certain extent, and I think we've talked about this before, Luke. It is about the ability of after this first set of trials, its ability to be able to walk away. Um, we were looking, the, the experiment was set up in a way to, if there were, we needed to see certain signals of, there were what I would call a key list of assumptions that had to be true. The drug had to get into the brain and by demonstrating certain spinal fluid levels. There's a, the drug had to show target engagement, at least preliminarily, on certain biomarkers. There had to be some trends on the cognitive tests that we were looking at um, that were positive towards an improvement. If we didn't see certain things, our idea was that you know there's a certain amount of money that we would invest and that we would need to be able to walk away. And in, so the idea was not to build out um, much infrastructure company around that. And I think sometimes this happens, if not often it happens in you know the the when when companies are fully funded um they become self perpetuating it's it's hard to walk away and there was enough about this that was speculative when we started in 2014 that we wanted to have this ability to truly walk away 
Um, now, as it did you did you design your phase two A early on, like right then, to try to answer all of these key questions, both biologically and clinically, that that you wanted? So it was not designed to answer every question fully. Um, it was certainly designed to answer questions like yes or no of does the drug get into the blood brain, you know, does it get into the brain? Do you achieve target concentrations? There's a certain safety profile it had to meet. But then there were other things that, again, if it, it could have been a no if on the cognitive test there were absolutely no signal at all. It was just like it was just going down and there was no positive but- sign at all. That would have been walk away as well. But it was okay. not designed to provide definitively either proof of mechanism or proof of concept. And right, right. the reason so you designed it this phase two way. did not have a it was a screening experiment. We did not have a placebo control. So we there are certain things we could not definitively answer because you did need a placebo control. And you didn't have a big budget for this. You wanted to get some more data. This is a phase two A. I think you had something like 25 patients. You did look at these cerebral spinal fluid markers as well as um, some cognitive measurements over uh, of both immediate memory and some longer term memory. But you followed these patients for something like, I think, three months. And uh, uh, it was at a, a much lower dose, 40 milligrams twice a day compared to like the dose limiting toxicity was somewhere up around 250. So you're well within the safety margin. And and what did you see here in this set of data, which I think you presented at CTAD, the CTAD conference a year ago? We we presented it actually now, time goes by. I think we originally presented three years ago now um, and published the main results last year. Um, from the from the larger study, there were two 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 studies within within phase two A, and what they showed was a again clear blood brain barrier penetration, um, evidence of biological activity at the forty milligram dose level, which is goes along with preliminary target engagement, um, and then a signal in terms of improvement on what are called tests, uh, they're tests of episodic memory. It's where you give certain amount of information, like a string of words or a story, ask the patient or individuals uh, to immediately repeat it and repeat it about a half an hour later. That's called immediate and delayed recall. And what they're testing is the circuitry in the hippocampus that is dependent on synaptic plasticity. And you can think of it as you're testing the encoding function within the brain for new information. Um, And this is the core of what goes wrong in the early stages of Alzheimer's disease is this encoding function um, goes awry. While we were doing what's important is while we were doing the phase 2A studies, another set of science from independent academic labs came out that pointed to that much more based on knockout work, um, where you knocked out the gene for P38 alpha inside neurons, um, as well with different inhibitors, that, that this is operating on the mechanisms underlying the deficit in memory function in um, ultimately in Alzheimer's disease patients, but in the animals, 
if you knock this out, you actually preserve that aspect in animal models of Alzheimer's disease, that very specific aspect around memory function and synaptic plasticity and synaptic transmission. So that was some encouraging data that came from independent labs while you were conducting the phase 2A. It is animal data. We need to take it with that with a grain of salt. Animal models for Alzheimer's have not been very predictive. Um, But you had enough here uh, from the cerebral spinal fluid, the the mechanistic markers, uh, and, and some observation there on memory uh, from your phase 2A, small sample size, to justify a bigger investment in a phase 2B. 161 patients, placebo-controlled, 24 weeks, looking at episodic memory, long-term memory, as well as the cerebrospinal fluid markers, tau, beta, the, a, a lot of things. Uh, now that, that study, reverse SD, that just, uh, you, you just reported on that very recently. And what did you find? So we found um, some very encouraging results, particularly with respect to target engagement and proof of mechanism. Um, this was a, it was a secondary objective in the study, but a very important, from a drug development standpoint, important secondary objective of the study. We were not able to demonstrate in a placebo-controlled study uh, what we had seen some preliminary evidence of in phase 2A, which is an actual improvement. That is, a patient gets better over six months of treatment and not just a slowing of decline in episodic memory function over six months. And that so was you missed our, on the primary endpoint. And that was but this our, was a high bar. It was a correct. Um, it was a um, within a six month trial. That is what you have to be see because there's not enough progression or decline in the placebo group to show that. So that it is a high bar. It really is looking at reversing disease and reversing disease progression to get actual improvement in episodic memory function. Which nobody and nobody has done, correct? Which has not been seen with any in any drug at any point. We did see, even within the six-month period of time, if you look at the uh, patients who had the highest blood levels, would you would expect, if you're going to see any effect, it's the patients who have gotten the most of drug into the blood, which would go along with the most blood getting into the brain, um, and see uh, what that primary endpoint and our secondary endpoint of episodic memory. And there's actually a very consistent effect towards a better and improved outcome um, in the, on both the Hopkins verbal learning test and the Wexner memory scale test um, in, in those patients who are above a certain threshold in their what's called a trough concentration, which is the prior to the, 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 the lowest concentration at any time during, during the day. So, so, John, I mean, you miss on the primary endpoint, and now you're talking about a retrospective analysis of a subgroup. Uh, so you're, you're looking for another hypothesis, Right. Um, I mean, this is hypothesis generating. This no, no, is not, no. you know, data that you can take to the FDA and say, hey, we've got an Alzheimer's drug. You don't. 
but you have the, the hypothesis for a new trial design, perhaps? No, so I think that it's actually not a new hypothesis. What I would, it's a, so in, so the, we did achieve what was one of the original hypotheses, which was that we would see an effect on phosphotau and tau in the spinal fluid, which is a biomarker of neurodegeneration. And in this context with this mechanism, if this drug were doing what it's supposed to do on the disease, it should have and in some terms, must have an effect on phosphotau and tau and in, in the spinal fluid. And that's exactly what we saw. So that, that argues for, with an original hypothesis, using the predefined analysis in the statistical analysis plan, this drug is actually doing biologically exactly what it's supposed to do um, on, on these measures. And these measures are meant to be more sensitive by design than cognitive outcomes on whether your drug has the effect that you wanted or not. So that's one okay, point. Okay, I, I follow all of this, John, but, but are you, uh, does this now argue for a new study yes, uh, in, in does, a compelling way? Like at a, maybe at a different dose or a longer-term follow-up? Is there something that you need to do with the trial design to, yes. to, to, uh, to correct for what you didn't see here? So the primary, so I think it's a very good question. Thank you. So it's two reasons. One is the, the reason we missed the primary endpoint, I think, is we were low on the dose. Um, I don't think it's based on the biology, et cetera, that it's the wrong mechanism or the wrong drug, and the drug isn't doing what it's supposed to do. We believe that it's primarily that we were low on the dose, and it was too short a study. Because the as we you know when you look at the, the biology data, that we now have that we didn't have two years ago when we started designed this study. We have a whole new range, whole new set of biology that we've continued the science work on the side that understands more deeply beyond P38 alpha kinase inhibition what this is actually doing to the disease process. If you look at all of that, then two things come out. One is that it is like, it actually firmly shows we should be at a higher dose level. That it, when we look at connected into our now what, what is the deep mechanism, potency, et cetera, we were about half the dose we needed to be. And so we should be somewhere in the 50 to 100% higher dose level. So and that's still between, within your safety range, by the that way. That is still within our safety range. And then there's when we look about the patterns and the mechanism, et cetera, in particular, even in this early stage, as we get into patients who are already being treated on current symptomatic therapies like donepezil, et cetera, so they're advanced enough, the, what you can really realistically hope for is an effect on progression. Because when you go back and look at all the data, when people have looked, there's already enough loss of neurons, frank death of neurons in the hippocampus when you get to that stage that it's highly unlikely you're going to be able to recover significant amounts of activity. So, and to look for that, that inherently requires a longer duration study, 12 to 18 months, likely even more, you know, in more 18 months than 12 months. Um, so it's a higher dose, 18 month duration study, that we should be looking at. 
what again, similar to phase 2A, um, some really um, astounding, in my mind, scientific data that's come out that matches this mechanistic work that we've been doing at. I think ultimately our drug is acting on both A-beta and a different part of APP called beta-CTF that leads to an activation of a very specific protein called RAB5, which is probably the, this increasing evidence that all the mutations, all the biology actually meets at RAB5 in something called endosomes and endosomes and endocytic function. This is about receptor turnover within the synapse um, and, the, and how proteins like APP and other proteins in the synapses and the receptions, how they're transported back to the surface of the synapse and back again, and then how they're transported back into the cell body, which often is a long ways away. Um, that's at the core of this, and RAB5 is a critical target, and the biology that we've shown is that this is the main effect pharmacologically is on RAB5 and correcting this endosomal dysfunction and endocytic dysfunction. And there's a paper that came out this past August from the lab of Mark Tessier-Levine, who is now president at Stanford. He was at Rockefeller. He was for many years head of research at, 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 uh, at Genentech, one of the foremost neurobiologists in the world. Um, that essentially says that the basic defect inside neurons in Alzheimer's disease, and this is looking at 34 different individuals and looking at iPSC-derived neurons um, from these individuals, that the core defect is RAB5 endosomal defects due to beta-CTF. Um, and so... I think it's actually in our biology and the tau markers, et cetera, much longer discussion, but essentially shows that it is, it gets connected into that biology. And I think we have actually the drug when we're thinking about beyond amyloid beta, which is what the world is thinking about. I believe that this is the mechanism that is really at the forefront. It's certainly the farthest advance into development. It's really in, a in, fascinating in conversation to see this thing, how, how this played out over the years. I mean, you say this paper from Mark Tessier Levine's lab just came out in August. Correct. <laughs> I mean, it, there's so much biology still being worked out. And, you know, I can't help. I, I, we're out of time and I can't really ask you about, you know, the, the latest cut of the data on aducanumab, the A-beta antibody from Biogen that everybody's talking about and kind of analyzing and reanalyzing the statistics on that phase two, phase three program. Excuse me. Um, I'm sure you have a view on this. I'll ask you another day. But hearing you talk about the biology and how our, our understanding has evolved at, at very basic levels, you know, I, I've made this point before on my newsletter, and we've talked about this, that this is a time for investing in a lot of the basic biology, uh, not really putting all our eggs in that one A beta basket. Um, so last, the thing I'd like to just close with here, John, is just like if you were you know, the director of, say, the National Institutes of Mental Health or somebody that, you know, directed resources for basic biology in this area. 
um, are there are there a couple of areas that you find really promising that you would put a priority on? Well, I think that we're we're uh, we're actually have made huge advances in the basic biology. I think the time has come to to actually test those hypotheses out in the clinic. Um, and I think beta CTF RAB5 is a major one. This I think synaptic dysfunction more generally is part of the, th- the theory. Uh, but we have finally the tools. I think what we know with amyloid beta is, is that to take any one theory, nothing, it, 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 it all comes to, you have to have drugs, antibodies, tools, technologies that are active in the clinic because it really doesn't matter. Everything in basic biology in the clinic doesn't matter. It never gets wrestled to the ground of is it really relevant until you do the human experiment. And I think right now, if I were the head of the National Institute of Aging, which is where the Alzheimer's funding comes from, and they're actually doing this, is that what you want is a rich and diverse set of investment into clinical trials that are proof-of-concept trials that ask, test very specific mechanisms in, across some of those highest um, you know, rated uh, uh, mechanisms. And you're going to see a lot of that actually at CTAD, that a number of these companies that are in, at the forefront of these new mechanisms are reporting phase one data. We're actually the only one reporting phase two data and we're the, the and proof of mechanism data, target engagement data, et cetera. But what you should look to is over the next 6, 12, 18 months, more and more of this type of experiment reading out. And that's what's going to accelerate our understanding of biology. And we're finally with the, the last 10 years of science since I started at Sanofi, or the last almost 10 years now, of what we knew then to what we know now about disease biology and translational biology, human biology, I think there's been a breathtaking change and advance. And that's what gives me optimism that we're no longer playing in a black box. There's a tremendous amount of light inside now. We haven't, it's not all lit up, but we're getting there. And every month, two months, three months, um, you know, there's more scientific advance, but it's really, it's the clinical data as it comes out. It just, you come to a completely, you know, another set of, not, not completely, but another level of understanding, and it's all coming together. And, the, and I'll just conclude with just what's optimistic and encouraging is, is that the, even in the failures, there's actually nothing inconsistent with the basic disease biology and model of what Alzheimer's disease we've been operating on. There's a, it all comes together and the more, as we're seeing, starting to see, like with aducunumab, positive results. And I believe in our data with proof of mechanism, a clear signal at the drug level and dose level that you would actually expect the kind of efficacy that we're, we were hoping, expecting to it's more validation of the disease model. And I think it is more about really the hypotheses and mechanisms we have, 
staying on it, and then eventually it may require combinations. Well, d- clinical trial designs like the one you just ran in that phase 2B, 160 patient, randomized, placebo-controlled, I mean, this is, um, <clears throat> this is a rigorous form of clinical experimentation. This is supposed to give us the answers that we're looking for. Um, and that's great to hear that you don't that you think that is the time for investors, like uh, venture capitalists, for uh, public investors. I mean, this is an area in which they play, and that there's good reason to. Um, so, thank you, John, for taking the time, sharing your perspective. Um, I really hope that uh, you have a, a positive experience there at CTAD, and that we we see some more data at that conference uh, to. Uh, to encourage us in the 2020s. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.